Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It is Wednesday night, usually coming to you live every Tuesday and Thursday night. Thank you for tuning in to this special edition on Wednesday. And um, I do have coming on the broadcast in about half an hour, Ben Swan of BenSwan.com to talk about his um, his website his uh, new endeavors, and also to talk about the uh, the state of the United States and um, what I want to get into, the future of media, where he believes this is all going, and his take on you know the legislation coming out of Washington turning the First Amendment right into a privilege. So we'll get into all that. I do have a clip of his that I do want to um play before he actually comes on air, so I'll probably get to that here in the next few minutes, but um absolutely crazy things have um transgressed since I've been on the air. And I do want to apologize for for losing my cool at the beginning of the last podcast, but I hope that you all can understand that I was under um I was frazzled, to say the least. I had no idea what the president was going to come out and say his plan was. This is so weird that I even have to talk like this in America. What his plan was going to be in Syria and then what he was going to do with Congress. So now that we've all got that kind of settled, and it's still up in the air, but who knows what's going on now? And it comes out today that uh, good old gentle Ben is going to um going to keep the stimulus flowing here but then there's talk of uh delays um on bond tapering so it doesn't look like he's going to take this foot off the pedal and there's a new poll out that you know the American public has no idea what QE3 is so big shocker there although if you'd ask them who won dancing with the stars last year you would probably um, we probably get a unanimous response. So, tons of stuff to cover in the naval shooter. Let me get into that really quick. So, CNN, I've actually seen the clips of it. I've seen the uh, screenshots on Facebook. I've seen a lot of different things. Um, the gentleman actually was taking psychotropics, was mentally ill, taking psychotropics, already had altercations with the police revolving, or excuse me, involving a gun. And he was still given military clearance. So that raised my eyebrow right away, but, you know, I'm one of those tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists that actually doesn't trust anything that the state-run propaganda throws at me. And it's not to say that everybody in the media is bad or anything like that. It's just that you have to know that they're going to have an agenda and they're going to covet some things and they're going to skew some facts and possibly misdirect 
some um some quotes or even you know phrase use verbiage in order to um kind of get themselves into a position where they can manipulate the people into believing one thing when it's truly another like the CNN clip saying that it was an AR15 that was used which it wasn't it was a shotgun and then they said it was an AR15 shotgun because they think the public's so damn dumb that the public doesn't know that an AR actually stands for an assault rifle it's an AR15 it is an assault rifle which means absolutely nothing. If I took a regular rifle and put a pistol grip on it and a stock on it, that's now an assault rifle. It changes nothing to do with the bullet velocity. It changes nothing to do with how fast the magazine loads or how much capacity the magazine has. It is just an addition, a tactical addition, to a stock gun making it quote-unquote assault. So we have that going on. And once again, Diane Feinstein appears out of her magic um, jack-in-the-box and, and dances around and says that we need to um, we need to have stricter gun laws. Because once again, crazy people going out and shooting people with guns means that you have to take away my firearms. That's what that means. And I do have clips from President Obama's sit-down with um, Stephanopoulos, who used to work for the Clinton administration, high level in the Clinton administration before he, you know, got into the media. So, you know, that's that's not state-run propaganda, I promise you. But once again, I try to look at what these people say and and then analyze and decode what they're really stating. And the Obama stuff was really kind of creepy. For anybody that's informed or has any clue what planet they're on or understands how our role of government works or you know just you know the basic foundations of liberty you kind of get freaked out when he starts talking and then he throws the line out well nobody nobody believes that that the rebels did this nobody meaning and implying that anybody that goes against the standard narrative, like they did on 9-11, the same kind of thing, and I do want to get into that with Ben Swan a little bit later too, so I do want to make a cliff note of that. But anybody that makes an inkling that this might be something other than what we say is just crazy. So we've got that going on. The Fed, once again, and I always harp on this because this is obviously – it's your money, people. It is what – it's the foundation of exchange that we use here in America. He's announced that he is not going to end the pumping. And the stock market shot up immediately because they're thinking that he's going to taper. Tapering would mean the interest rates would go up, basically seizing the economy, which is inevitable anyway. But what we're doing is just postponing the inevitable. And who knows how long this is going to go on. So... I don't know, and I and this is one thing that we had a discussion on um, last night. My um, my friend and I, Ben, on uh, Facebook, we exchanged a couple of messages, and um, I really do, not that I believe in the giant conspiracy or anything, but I do have this stupid part of me that believes that rich and powerful people want to do rich and powerful things. That's just what they do. Just like they believe that we're dumbed-down animals and we need to be herded and 
and controlled, otherwise it will just go off the reservation and destroy the planet. Which in reality is kind of funny because they're the ones trying to destroy the planet starting World War III and, and bullying Assad into stepping down. And then we're going to use limited, you know, tiny missiles, tiny little missiles that are just pinpoint missiles or pinpricks. We don't do pinpricks. But we can use, you know, tiny little missiles that um, that just um, that just kill the bad guys. It's one of the other great lies that Obama had in his speech on Sunday was that the chemical the chemical weapons are just you know they're just indiscriminate. Well, your drone attacks are indiscriminate, and they have a three three percent success rate. And that's on the high end. It's a ninety. Let's just go once again. Be conservative and not try to get fired up. It's a ninety five percent collateral damage rate for a drone strike. Yet you order those every Tuesday, like it's you know no big deal. And the rest of the world is just going to have to accept it. That I mean, we make the rules. That's the way. That's the attitude of the of the American complex now. We make the rules. We tell you who's in charge. If your dictator's in there, we don't like him. Even though we put him in and he wants to trade in something other than gold, than or excuse me, something other than than the um, the petrodollar, then I'm sorry, you gotta go. But wait a minute, you're the one that brought me in here. Can't we make a deal? Oh yeah, we can make a deal. We're we're gonna bomb you, but we can make a deal. And I think that's what Assad's thinking. He's like, I've seen this. I've seen this one before. You guys did this with the Saddam Hussein. You did this with Mubarak. And you also did this with... Um, oh, gosh. In Libya. So, with Gaddafi. And I'm not defending any of those guys. But once again, you know, stabilizing force in the region. And then they're right next door to Iran. So Iran's like, we know what the, we know what the deal is, guys. We're not dumb. And once again, the Soviets have a naval base over there. Had my friend Jacob Yannicky on here that was a um that was a a former he was a, in a, a former seaman. He was in, in the navy. He was breaking down where that um where that was in the Strait of Hormuz and on the other side. So I mean interesting interesting things going on all around the world, but most of the people that I talk to have no clue, and it's really sad. But I think that there's a small segment of the population that's really changing, and if I can go a little hippie on everybody, that's really changing the vibration of what's going on now. It doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it did a couple of years ago, where Americans were just kind of you know slushing around and just kind of getting through it, and who are the Vikings playing this weekend. It seems like that. The American public is starting to realize that attacks on the Second Amendment are not going to go away, and they're probably due to the fact that these people understand that something big is coming. And if you haven't realized that, welcome to the party. Something big is coming, whether it's going to be World War III, a financial you know, a hiccup. I don't want it to be a collapse. Let's just hope for a hiccup. Uh, EMP strike, solar flare, who knows? But the government's buying a bunch of bullets and tanks and stuff like that, and that makes me kind of nervous. 
But I think that, you know, they could also do that for strategical reasons and for, you know, for reasons of trying to dry up the supply. And then and then I have trouble buying 22 ammo because it's nowhere to be found because nobody wants to make nobody wants to make 22 ammo because you can, you know, obviously make 223 ammo and then go sell it to the government at a ridiculous markup because they'll pay it because of no good bid contracts and all that stuff. So lots of moving parts here and that's why that's why reality isn't simple. And I think that that's why people kind of default into the matrix reality because the matrix reality is simple. I go to work, I come home, I watch ESPN or excuse me, I go work, I come home, I eat my dinner, drink a beer, watch ESPN or whatever sitcom is on, fall asleep, wake up, rinse, repeat. So But once you come into the reality of the situation, the reality of the the military-industrial complex, the reality of the corporate-industrial complex, the reality of mind control that goes on on a massive scale in America through parts of the mainstream media, whether they believe that they're contributing to it or not, they believe that they might be helping the population. I don't know. But they're shaping the narrative, and they kind of want to manipulate the reality to whatever their desired outcome is. So looking at reality, it's very difficult to just say, well, this is the way it is, just like with this, just like with this shooter. I mean, he was on Psychotropics. He played Call of Duty for 18 hours a day, which, once again, one of my... Guilty Pleasures is video games, but I don't obsess over it. I definitely don't play it 18 hours a day. I do have to have a life, and I have to read and and do research and other things because I would like to be informed on what's going on all around the world. I would like to know what's going on with my currency. I would like to know what's going on with our foreign policy. I would like to know what's going on in Washington. So very limited time for games, but games, once again, I'll just be honest with the audience because, I mean, let's face it, we're all adults here. I do play video games every once in a while, and most of the time I do play Call of Duty, but it's just to shoot zombies. It's not to, you know, interact and 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 shoot in, you know, their their matchmaking games or whatever. So I just went really nerdy on everybody. So if I just lost all the audience, I apologize. We're going to get back to politics here in a minute. But the thing that makes it so crazy to me is that first, it's always going to be well. Well, it's him playing the violent video games that does it. Listen, millions of people. It actually just came out today that Grand Theft Auto V just sold like $800 million worth of copies. That's a ton of cash. Now, does that mean that we're going to have eight, $800 million worth of mass murders tomorrow? No. Because if you're experiencing video games the way that I believe that they're intended to be experienced, and yes, there's propaganda laden in video games, and we talked about that on my last podcast with Josh, talking about the um, the quote-unquote Assad character that wasn't Assad, but then it was Syria on the map when it zoomed in. I still haven't found my copy of that game, and I do want to check it out because that's very interesting if that is the case because you could really push that as some um, pre-programming propaganda, which, you know, it, it makes me sound so crazy, but it's stuff is so real. I mean, like, 
There was mass pre-programming before 9-11 about Osama bin Laden. I mean, there's just there's always a massive hype around certain things like this. So it, it makes you – to the general public, it's going to seem like I'm absolutely bat you-know-what crazy. But for the people that are informed and understand that government has looked for a long time, even since the 40s and 50s, using psychedelics and psychotropics out of mind control people, it doesn't seem far-fetched at all. But then again, I, I don't know who's you know listening for the first time and, and who's a loyal listener, so just kind of flying by the seat of my pants here. So violent video games are not going to cause this. Violent video games with a psycho with psychotropics and a psychotic tendency, that's going to cause stuff like this. And once again, you can't just cop out everybody and say, well, it's the gun. Well, it's the video games. You you all want to make it way too easy in the media. You, you would love to believe that it's just one thing and that there couldn't just be a crazy person. Well, let me tell you what happens on a day-to-day -day basis. Somebody's going to walk in tonight, and I know this is a crazy thing to think about. Somebody's going to walk in tonight on their wife cheating on them and going to kill somebody. That's going to happen. Does that mean that that person was crazy? Does that mean that that person went through a fit of rage? Absolutely. Does it mean that they're you know certifiably crazy? No. But bad things happen. That's what's called life, everyone. But you have to pull yourself back from the the glitz and the glamour and the media and figure out – is it really that dangerous? Is this really going on? And I made a Facebook post last night, and yes, I'm going to admit I did borrow this from Joe Rogan, and I'm going to repost it again tonight after the show. But it really is true that America has a serious drug problem, and we have a drug problem in the worst way. It is not through illegal drugs that we have a drug problem. It's through prescription drugs. See, a funny thing happens when you put on a little white coat. And anybody that is anybody that has studied Pavlov understands what I'm about to say. The funny thing is about the little white coat, and you remember everybody talks about the bell that would ring and he would salivate. That's that's only a portion of the experiment. If you look really into the research of the experiment, anytime the dog would see the white coat, the dog would salivate. The white coat was the perceived authority. It was the He knew that the white coat was going to mean that he was going to get food. And so as soon as he saw the white coat, not necessarily the bill, he would actually salivate. So the American people have been conditioned to believe in the Rockefeller Foundation MD Medicine Group that anybody that prescribes you anything in a white coat is going to be perfectly safe for you. Yes, there's disclaimers, but you know what? If you're anything like myself, you're thinking, this person has no vested interest in killing me, so why would they even give me something that could possibly kill me or harm me? So we take the leap of faith with the person in the white coat. And the person in the white coat does not disappoint. They give you your psychotropic, which on the insert says that it can cause mental breakdowns, mass hysteria. And believe me, from somebody that dated somebody that is bipolar, if they don't take the medication, it's bad. If they take the medication, it's bad. So it's really a win-win. It's really a no-win situation there. For some people, some people it actually balances them out and they're fine and they can operate in society. But some people, it puts them in kind of a twilight, suspended disbelief, and they just kind of go with it. So that's where we're at now. 
And I've got Ben Swan coming up in 10 minutes, so I do want to play his clip of where he confronted President Obama, you know, the god. I can't believe he, you know, went and confronted a god about his kill list and everything. So here is the clip um, from Ben Swan, and hopefully I will be getting him pulled up here momentarily. So thanks for listening, everybody. You know, be sure to share the podcast with people you know, people you like, people that love liberty, and people that just want a different take on things. If you're tired from the old stale take on things, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm right a thousand percent of the time or even a hundred percent of the time. I'm just giving you my opinion of the world and the world the way I see it. And most of the time, from the people that I, you know, interact with, their worldview is pretty similar to mine. Not necessarily meaning that they agree with me on everything. Because we are going to have ideological differences and political differences here and there. But we just need to change the narrative, everybody. Don't sit there and repeat the same talking points that you hear on Alex Jones or something like that. Have a free thought. That is the coolest thing in the entire world about being a free individual human being is having a free thought, a free emotion that is one that is purely yours. That is just something ingrained that comes out of your psyche or your gut or your your spirit, whatever you want to call it. That is the beauty of humanity, and that is where we need to go. So here is Ben Swan with his clip, and uh, we'll be back on the other side. Mr. President, first of all, thank you for taking the time. Thank to you so much. Uh, when you signed the National Defense Authorization Act into law, you issued a signing statement at that time that right. said you would not use that power for indefinite detention on Americans. You understood right. the concerns that people had. Yeah. Uh, a judge earlier this year issued that the administration couldn't use those powers because it's um, unconstitutional. So why are the government's own lawyers fighting that judge's order, the injunction in particular? Yeah. Well, look, uh, the basic principle here is, number one, my first job is to keep the American people safe. Number two, mm -hmm. we've got to do it in a way that respects our values uh, and our he traditions and rule of law. Uh, that's why I ban torture. Uh, that's why uh, I've argued that we should actually close Guantanamo. Uh, but I've also said that you know we've got uh, some bad guys uh, who are down there who we may not be able to try in a traditional court, but uh, have pledged to try to hurt Americans. And... So, so just that's this one, something dude. that we inherited that we're dealing with, and it's complicated. On the other hand, what I also said was uh, a U.S. citizen can never uh, be subject to that kind of detention. Congress disagreed with me, uh, and I didn't want uh, us to not be able to finance our military and pay our soldiers and our troops. Uh, so I signed the bill, but what I also said was, look, uh, that I'm never going to use this power. And uh, you know, what I would uh, suspect is that... Um, uh, the courts are going to agree with us over the long term that that is not something that you can use when it comes to U.S. citizens. Well, let me ask you then also about the, the so-called presidential kill list that's gotten a lot of attention and mm -hmm. this, this list of, of folks who have been targeted for assassination. Right. And on that list have been U.S. citizens who have not been afforded trial, including Anwar Awalaki. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, as president or any president for that matter, regardless of party or person, utilize that power to assassinate even U.S. citizens? Well, first of all, you're uh, basing this on uh, reports in uh, the news that uh, have never been confirmed by me, uh, and I don't talk about our national security uh, decisions in that way. Uh, more broadly, though, uh, our goal has been to focus on al-Qaeda, uh, to focus narrowly on those who would pose an imminent threat to the United States of America, uh, and that's why it's not just bin Laden, but a whole tier of al-Qaeda leadership uh, has been taken off the field, and uh, that's part of what has allowed us to now begin to transition out of Afghanistan, to begin to bring our troops home, 
Uh, we're going to have to be vigilant uh, for the foreseeable future when it comes to terrorists, but we have to do so in a way that is consistent with the laws of war, with international law. Uh, that's something we've always abided by, but beyond that, I probably can't comment on, on something uh, as specific as what you just mentioned. But can you comment on, on, you mentioned about al-Qaeda during your speech, going after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, certainly going after them in Yemen as well. Yeah. And yet there's some concern about the U.S. funding uh, the Syrian opposition when there are a lot of reports that al-Qaeda is yeah. kind of heading up that opposition. Uh, how do you justify the two? Well, I, uh, I share that concern. Uh, and so uh, what we've done is to say we will provide non-lethal assistance to Syrian opposition leadership that are committed to a political transition, committed to uh, a, uh, an observance of human rights, we're not going to just dive in and get involved with a civil war that in fact uh, involves some elements of people who are genuinely trying to get a better life, but also involve uh, some folks who would over the long term do the United States harm. So Syria is a tough situation, uh, but this is an example of a broader foreign policy that I've tried to implement that is practical, that applies common sense, that says we can't solve every problem uh, or throw uh, uh, our troops into harm's way every time there's a, a, a situation in the Middle East. Uh, what we have to do is selectively say what is it that uh, is most important to protect U.S. persons, U.S. property, our bases around the world, and how can we help those forces that care about human rights, those forces that are seeking democracy. Uh, we want to encourage them. Uh, in some cases, like Libya, we're able to make a difference. Um, Syria is a more complicated situation, and we're trying to work with the international community to see if we can bring about Assad leaving and we can bring about a more peaceful resolution to the problem. And you did mention, one more, you did mention the speech as well about Afghanistan, yeah. and yet uh, while we do see a drawdown of troops, we're talking about at least 10 more years there being spent in, a, in a, an advisory role. Mm -hmm. And yet we continually see these, these Afghan soldiers and policemen turn their weapons on our soldiers. Is it worth it for us to retain American lives there, Americans who are being killed by these Afghan soldiers they're supposed to be training? Shouldn't we just bring all those troops home, or do we stay another 10 years? Well, keep in mind, we're not planning to stay another 10 years. This war will be over in 2014. Uh, what we've said is we'll partner uh, with Afghans, just as we partner with a whole bunch of countries all around the world. Um, the, the recent spate of uh, what are called green on blue attacks, where uh, folks who are at least in Afghan police or military uniforms uh, end up attacking us, uh, is something that's deeply troubling and our Joint Chiefs are spending a lot of time on. Keep in mind, though, there are 300,000 Afghan soldiers that are partnering with us. Uh, and so even one attack like this is one too many. But uh, it's absolutely not true that what we're seeing is generally uh, antagonism with Afghan forces. In fact, they welcome and are uh, very interested in us training them so that they can be responsible for their own security. And the sooner we can accomplish that, the better off we are. But my intention is we are going to have our combat troops out of Afghanistan by the uh, end of 2014. And this is a contrast uh, among many uh, that I've got with uh, uh, the other party. Uh, Governor Romney hasn't been clear about what exactly his plans are uh, when it comes to Afghanistan. He criticized me about ending the war in Iraq as I did. Uh, I think the American people understand that after a decade of war, uh, our soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, uh, and their families have made enormous sacrifice. They've carried an enormous burden. Uh, we need to focus our attention not only on going after al-Qaeda and terrorists who would attack us, but we've also got to do some nation building here at home. Uh, and that's going to be one of my uh, number one priorities is 
using some of the money that we're saving on war to help rebuild Ohio, help rebuild the United States, put people back to work, because we're only going to be as strong militarily as we are economically. And uh, I think oh my the, God. the choice in this election for a lot of folks is going to come down to who's going to be in a better position to strengthen our economy and our middle class, who've been taking it on the chin for uh, over a decade now. And I'm confident that the plan I'll present on Thursday uh, is going to be a better plan. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Okay, um, let me see who we have on the line here. I wonder if that is Mr. Ben Swan. Caller, you are on the air. Welcome. It is Ben Swan. How are you? Ben, doing well, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope that was not uh, a little redundant for you, but I was just playing your um, your questioning of um, President Barack Obama. So thank you so much for the time. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be on. Which, well, which questioning was it? Um, <laughs> funny enough, it, it hit all angles. It was the one where you were talking about the uh, the kill list, and then you segued into us funding Al Qaeda in Syria, and uh, it was that uh, the whole seven minute clip where you actually got to fire off a couple of questions before they before they shooed you out. So, oh, good. So you, you played the whole thing. That's terrific. Absolutely. So. Without further ado, everybody, um, kind of an impromptu um, introduction of Ben Swan. Um, let me pull up his bio really quick. I have my show notes here. Uh, ben Swan spent 14 years working as a journalist in broadcast news, and he didn't want to bore you with the information. He won the Edward R. Morrow Award twice, I believe, and two Emmys also. And then he spent a year in Mexico covering the war on drugs and the so-called United States War on Drugs. And most of you will know him from my podcast, from Reality Check, where I used to feature his segments regularly because he tackled real issues with real questions and did some true journalism. So once again, thank you, Ben Swan, for coming on. Well, thanks for, again for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> A kind uh, introduction. Well, thank you, sir. Now. The one thing I wanted to um, to touch on at the very beginning was um, just to give us some background. How did you get into media? Well, I actually got into it um, as a news photographer because I needed a job. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not exactly a, a terribly exciting story, but I, I just <laughs> had three brothers who were news photographers and was looking for work, and one of them suggested I do it. And I said, I have no interest in doing that, guys, really, no <laughs> Um, but they, they pushed me, and so I started doing it and really enjoyed it. Enjoyed kind of the shooting and editing process. And um, mm -hmm. after a while, I I you know really started to enjoy the time there. Uh, mm -hmm. But then I got married and started having kids and said, I need to make more money. And so I transitioned from being a photographer to actually being a reporter, which is kind of a, a difficult jump to make. A lot of folks um, don't make that jump. It, uh, kind of a left brain, right brain kind of a thing. So, okay. uh, but I did do that and was able to do so successfully, and and then enjoyed uh, the reporting side of it. So it's kind of all grown from there. But really started out getting into the business uh, out of necessity above anything else. Now here's a question I've wanted to ask. Um, I have a friend of mine that works at CNN and um, never really gotten him, I guess, cornered long enough to ask him this question, but. Can you explain to the audience what goes on behind the scenes at uh, at just your average run-of-the-mill broadcast? Like who decides what's going to go on air, what segments are produced, that kind of stuff. Yeah, the way it works, especially in a, in a local affiliate, um, you have assignment meetings every single day where um, lots of stories come into a newsroom. 
and they come in a variety of different ways. The majority of them, though, candidly, uh, come in through news releases that are sent out uh, from either the city or from, you know, uh, a local police department. And so a lot of that kind of fills up uh, what we call the planner. Mm -hmm. You also have um, uh, different reporters who will bring ideas. Um, You have folks who are watching what other media are doing locally. And then on top of all of that, most TV stations are affiliates of some network. So you might be a CBS affiliate or a Fox affiliate, Mm -hmm. a CNN affiliate. And so you'll also have uh, stories that will come down on wires. And so there are producers who will go through all that information and reporters, and they go through all of it, and they decide what they want to fill up a newscast with uh, each day. And Mm -hmm. uh, exactly how those decisions are made, typically, I believe, and this is just my opinion, but I believe Mm -hmm. most of those decisions are made because of kind of a a group think, this is how we do it, this is what we always do. And so in, in the 1990s, uh, in the 80s, there was a phrase they used a lot with uh, TV stations, if it bleeds, it leads. And okay. so the philosophy was if it's someone gets shot or someone is murdered, that's always the lead story because that's what okay. people care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, it all shifted to weather. Uh, if there is severe weather or disruptive weather, that's what leads um, hmm. because that, they assume that's what people care about. Uh, and, and part of that's the results of um, TV consultants. So there's kind of a process to it um, of how it all comes together, but I'm not sure that a lot of people in the business understand why we do what we do anymore. They just kind of go along and and do it. So is it just talking points disseminated down from, I'm sure to a certain extent, but talking points disseminated down from, like you said, the flagship station or something like that, and then picked up and then regurgitated by the the local media is... Is that what you're just uh, some some portions? I would assume, correct? Well, I, yeah, I don't think it's so much even um, that it's talking points. In some mm-hmm. cases, uh, especially national news, it's just scripts that come down. So a okay. script will come down, and and uh, local affiliate will pick it up and and they'll run with it. Um, okay. And they don't really they don't even question it because it comes from the network, so it comes from an, an official source. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of that news, though, and and where you start to get into whether or not that news is accurate, is the point of view that's taken. Because even though a lot of folks will say, well, no, it's just straight news, it's not just straight news. There's Mm -hmm. there's kind of a point of view um, that fits into a lot of it. So, for instance, I interviewed a guy recently who who created an app called Ghetto Tracker. And Ghetto Tracker um, is is essentially an app that allows users to say what part of town they're in when visiting an area, a city, and they rate the area. Is it a good area, a bad area? Do I feel comfortable being here? And essentially it's set up for when you're visiting areas or cities that you don't know well to decide whether or not you know, you know what part of town to stay in. If you go to Hotels.com, okay. he says, for instance, you might see a, a hotel has three stars. That doesn't mean it's in a bad area. It might just mean it's a bad hotel. You might have good hotels, but they're close to bad areas. So that's the idea behind it. Well, the guy's story, when he, the day that they kind of released the beta test on the website, it mm-hmm. got picked up by some media. And immediately there was this claims of how he had this racist app that was designed <laughs> to keep, you know, whites and blacks apart, keep the rich and the poor apart, um, and that it was classist and all these things. But the fascinating part is, and I'm sure your listeners have seen this, mm-hmm. um, when Conan O'Brien makes fun of, you know, broadcasters, and they're all reading the exact same script on the exact same day. Sure. Uh, and, and it, you know, you, we've all seen that. 
Well, that happens all the time because, for instance, in his case, CNN writes a wire story about it, and it goes mm-hmm. out to all the CNN affiliates. And mm-hmm. all the affiliates pick it up, and they copy and paste that text into their story, and it runs in their newscast. And so the viewer at home thinks that the local station discovered this app and is reporting mm-hmm. about this app, but they didn't. In fact, the local guys at the local station don't even bother to ever even check and see whether or not the app is an app, and it wasn't an app at the time. It was just a website. Uh, there mm-hmm. was no app that had been created. They didn't know anything about it, but but that's very typical. Um, it, there's this desire to get a lot of content out, and so you're just grabbing information, you're trusting that it's accurate, and everybody's running with it as if it is uh, official or gospel. Or straight from the horse's mouth, as you would say. Okay. Now, when talking about your experiences with the war on drugs, was that an eye-opener for you, seeing how the the media would spin it, or maybe wire stories involving something like that, and then what you were seeing was contradicting what was going on in the media? Define contradictory. <laughs> um, let's see. Maybe the point of view wasn't the proper point of view to to really hone in on what the what the war on drugs was doing to the to the United States. Instead, honing in on the problem of well, we're we're arresting all these people instead of having the the overall worldview, I guess, of maybe this isn't such a good thing to to have guys going around and enforcing such laws when it was a failed policy from the get go. Right. Yeah, I think I think the issue here is we have these archetypes, right, that are kind of built to society, and mm-hmm. I think what we see today is that media operates on a very, very basic, almost primitive level. Um, okay. They're always looking for the lowest common denominator. And so we have certain narratives in media that I think are commonly used. So, for instance, um, drugs equals bad. Okay. Right. Um, so if you report that someone was arrested or someone had drugs on them, that equals they're a bad person. Uh, mm-hmm. They're a criminal. Um, and, and so there are these kind of things that go along with it. Well, the problem, of course, with it is when you automatically begin to create a narrative, and whoever's creating it, you create the narrative, and now all of a sudden you can't have a very reasonable discussion about drug policy, about drug laws, about the fact that there are lots of people who are locked up in prisons in America, and they've only committed a crime, if you want to call it a crime, uh, mm-hmm. against themselves. I mean, they're choosing to put a substance in their body that government has de- has deemed as illegal, but there are other chemicals that are allowed to put into their bodies that if they buy them from a very expensive pharmaceutical company, um, it's perfectly acceptable. So mm-hmm. we don't really question those things because the narrative speaks for us. The narrative tells us that certain things are okay and certain things that are, uh, are not, and so we don't really have to get into the details and look at the, I guess, the realities of these decisions, because instead we're so busy just kind of playing the narrative. Um, mm-hmm. People who get arrested are clearly they're bad people, and the people who, you know, are abusing drugs, they're bad people. Um, mm-hmm. Drugs themselves are bad and harmful to children. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we, we will have that conversation, but we don't have the intelligent conversation about the fact that alcohol 
is, in many cases, much more detrimental to society than marijuana is, and yet mm-hmm. it's perfectly legal. So Absol- Absolutely. It requ- and it's- but it requires the effort, right? It requires the mm-hmm. effort of having that conversation and actually knowing something about what you're talking about. Right, and if if anybody does any research on it, and I've posted it on on my website and posted it on Facebook a couple of times, where they even have graphs on which is most detrimental to you and which is most harmful to society, and right at the top of the list is alcohol, both in detrimental to you and detrimental to society. So it is one of those, um, I guess, situations where they've created a narrative, and then we can't challenge the narrative because that would open up a whole different can of worms. So Shifting a little bit, I, I saw that you wrote an article yesterday um, in taking on the the Navy shooter and, and bringing up the fact that most of the time when, when events like this happen, mass shootings happen, these people are on SSRIs and they do have mental instability. Um, I want you to uh, expand on that and also why the mainstream media steers clear of of bringing this to light and creating a debate out of it. Well, I, I think it's unfortunate, you know, and I, I actually got uh, quite a bit of criticism from some different libertarians, in fact, uh, who were angry that I even brought the issue up and said, well, see, you're just playing into conspiracy stuff, and there's no evidence that this was involved. Listen, I'm not saying there's evidence. As you read mm-hmm. the article, then you know that we're not saying there's any evidence. In fact, I, I specifically say in the article it's irresponsible to claim that this is the cause of these shootings. It's mm-hmm. also irresponsible to not consider that mm-hmm. the narratives we, we've been talking about narratives tonight. The narrative sure. that the left always goes to is the propensity of guns, the availability of guns, and mm-hmm. therefore, if we could just take away guns from people, these shootings wouldn't happen. They Correct. always go to that narrative. It was so mm-hmm. quick to go to that narrative that that we had media immediately reporting that an AR-15 rifle was used, and then having to backtrack and say, well, it turns out actually it wasn't used. And mm-hmm. by the way, if you go and read the CNN online article, <laughs> CNN writes an entire article explaining that no AR-15 rifle was used, and then says, but it was often used in these other shootings, and it lists all these other shootings. <laughs> And it's it's like, always the back of the paper, the back of the paper, end of the article kind of deal where it's like, oh, never mind. Well, what we really meant was this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, just, it goes on to this whole thing of, of talking about other shootings. But, but the left always goes to that. And then on the right, you know, they always go to this idea that, well, clearly this must be an al-Qaeda plot, a Muslim extremist mm-hmm. who, you know, he hates America and that's why he's doing this. And they mm-hmm. immediately turn to that narrative and and in this case, it's an African-American man, so they say, oh, wow, he's African-American, so he must be uh, an al-Qaeda supporter, and maybe he's an American <laughs> Muslim. It turns out he kind of attended a Buddhist temple, but he wasn't right. even really a Buddhist. He was just attending a Buddhist temple. But when you, so, so when you break down those narratives, and now everyone's scrambling, and I, I keep seeing the word mystery. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but the word mystery is used over and over when talking about this guy. What's the mystery? Why would he do this? The mm-hmm. one area that nobody discusses is the fact that when you talk about Adam Lanza and Sandy Hook, when mm-hmm. you talk about this this uh, shooter, yes, it's Aaron Alexis, the, the Navy mm-hmm. Air shooter, uh, mm-hmm. when you talk about many of these guys, um, there are, and James Holmes is the same thing also, by the way, there are all kinds of reports about the use of um, some kind of medication mm-hmm. for depression, 
or for some kind of mental health issue. Correct. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to say if we're seeing this, why is it that, that CNN is so quick to say, well, we need to track how many AR-15s are involved in these so that we can try to tie it to that and never mention the fact that a lot of these people are on uh, medication? And, and, and does that have a role? I can't say that it does, but I can say we should at least look at that. It's not oh, unreasonable to look at that. Absolutely, and it's just you know that's just looking at the facts and then making a an informed decision on if like you said if you if you laid them all out on a spreadsheet on an Excel spreadsheet you know the mass shootings that have happened over the last couple of years you're exactly right almost in almost every incident even back to Columbine they have people that have you know mental mental stability issues so. And I understand where the background checks come from and they would like to look at, you know, mental health and that becomes a slippery slope and I get all of that. But I do think that there needs to be a discussion going on around the country. And I actually posted something to Facebook and I said that, you know, America might have a mental illness problem disguised as a gun problem because it's it's turning into the people that have mental instability will go and will get guns and typically won't be, you know, a gun that they go buy at the store. It'll be something they got from a third party and then they go out and commit these atrocities and then like you said it's it's the two default narratives take place and then we we end up in the same place that we were instead of having an intelligent discussion and saying well maybe there's something to this but let's let's at least rule it out first before we start jumping to all these other hypotheticals yeah no i think that's absolutely true i think that's i think that's very reasonable and i and again the issue is too um, is the mental health issue being uh, made worse by certain types of, of drugs? Look, the fact is we have a society right now um, that is doped up on something, and it seems like mm-hmm. everybody is. Everybody mm-hmm. seems to be taking something. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, we talk a lot about these mass shootings and how we're seeing an increase in them, and, and the media talks about this a lot. They say there's this increase in mass shootings. So even though there's still you know, statistically much lower than just gun violence or or violent crime in general, that these are, you know, kind of a small percentage, Mm -hmm. they are becoming more frequent. That is true. But the the reasons they give for that, you know, the accessibility they say to guns is untrue. Um, But what we are seeing is more and more people medicated, more and more people on medication from a much younger age. So I I think it's it's a fair question to say, is there, um, you know, something that's happening with the psychosis of these people that's causing them uh, to react this way. And by the way, another issue that, that media keeps bringing up are video games and saying, well, mm-hmm. what about these video games? He, he will mm-hmm. like to play Call of Duty. They said this about Adam Lanza as well. Mm-hmm. He was in his base playing video games a lot. It, why is it more responsible to talk about whether or not there's a connection to video games than to talk about whether or not there's a connection to the drugs these people are putting in their body? Absolutely, and that's one of the things I addressed. I don't know if you were listening before you came on, but one of the things I addressed also is that I, I am a gamer, but it's not. It doesn't encompass my life like these guys. I, I consider these guys to be, you know, losers in my category. But I do play Call of Duty, and like I said before, I play it just to basically shoot zombies. It's nothing more than that to me. 
So to to equate that to something that people millions of people a day log on to Call of Duty and nobody goes out and shoots anybody, and to equate that like you were saying to to this being one of the one of the issues or possibly the driving force that drove him to go kill people is I think uh, is I think unethical and irresponsible. I would I would 100% agree with you on that. So here's um transitioning into some some other fun topics. Um 9/11. You made an incredible video about 9/11. And um can you just explain to the audience what what you uncovered by making that um I think it was a 14-minute video or whatever. What you uncovered by by talking to these people and and what you believe the discussions should be or should we reopen the investigation? Well, it's interesting because we did this piece and it's, you know, had over 200,000 views uh, in a week on YouTube and a lot of people talking about it, um, you know, some very negatively and some very positively. The main thing we wanted to do was talk about the issue that, uh, unfortunately, you're not allowed to talk about in this country. And yet, uh, one of the things we looked at is the fact that statistically the polls show, new polls show, that more and more Americans just do not believe the official narrative about 9-11. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't mean they all agree on what happened. Doesn't mean that they all uh, agree that you know Dick Cheney was hiding in the basement with bombs, <laughs> which <laughs> some people believe, and that's right. fine. But and, and as you watch the piece, you know uh, we don't draw any conclusions. But what mm-hmm. we talk about is the fact that when NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, released their report on how Building Seven came down uh, in 2008, there was information in there that was structurally incorrect. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that. As, as lay people, we don't know these things. But there is mm-hmm. a group called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth mm-hmm. um, who have 2,000, okay, not two, but 2,000 professional architects and engineers, mechanical engineers, civil engineers, structural engineers, who have signed on saying that the way that NIST claims the building came down is impossible, mm-hmm. could not have come down this way. Um, they claim it, it had to have been a controlled demolition. Now, again, I don't know if that's true, but I believe this. I believe that as a journalist, we have an obligation to hear people who are saying, you know, I have expertise in this field. Mm-hmm. I have degrees in this field. I've worked in this field my entire career, and I'm telling you, it, this doesn't work. And there should be, they say, a new investigation, an independent investigation into how that building came down. Mm-hmm. Now, again, as a journalist, my job is not to decide whether they're right or not, but Correct. to at least give them you know, the opportunity to be heard. And it's very sad to me that still in America, we don't want to give anyone uh, a platform to speak if we disagree with them on this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more Americans are moving away from that. And so... Uh, you know, you, for your, your listeners who have not seen it, if you go to com, you can check it out. Uh, I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to watch it, though. And, and don't watch it expecting me to be a truther and to convince <laughs> you that it was all a big conspiracy. You know, mm-hmm. but just watch it with an open mind to the idea that maybe in the past 12 years, our government has lied to us about some things. And so if if professionals are telling us that there's something wrong with the story, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we should look into it. And that's, and that's all we really, you know, we really address. But I think it's, it's, uh, it's important that we do address those issues. 
And um, I interviewed, um, actually met him at a, a Liberty event. I interviewed Richard Gage, the um, president and head of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, and he went into great detail on on Building 7. And like you said, you and I, the lay people, we, I could never get there in a million years, but he broke it down pretty succinctly. And and I take the same stance that you do. I don't I don't believe that I know what happened. I don't believe in a conspiracy. And, and my philosophy behind my entire show is to just get people to think and get people to question, which is what yep. it seems like that your it seems like that your show and that your videos and um and your investigations that you pull up basically do that, and that's to just challenge the narrative, challenge where these people are getting these sources from, where the information is coming from. And that's actually an interesting segue into my next question about um, freedom of the press here in America. And that's our First Amendment right, but right now we have people in Washington, D.C. that would like to, I guess, rubber stamp or I don't know what the proper terminology would be, put you on the on the good boy list to be a, a quote-unquote journalist. And I know yeah. that um, you as an independent journalist, and m me also, I guess I would be considered independent media, um, I have some issues with that, and um, and I know that you've taken a stance on that. So explain to the audience what's going on in Washington and what they're kind of kicking around as ideas to, um, I guess, better transport the narrative to the people. Yeah, well, it all actually comes from a discussion over Shields Law. So mm -hmm. if you don't know what that is, essentially if, if, a, if a reporter um, interviews someone who is a whistleblower, so an Edward Snowden, you know, Bradley Manning, and mm -hmm. you, you interview someone and you get information, um, government can come to you and say, you've got to tell us who's telling you this. You've got to tell us where you got the information from. You've got to turn over anything you have. You have to, you have to reveal your sources to us. And so mm -hmm. what SHIELD laws do is, is they say, no, uh, uh, there's a separation of powers here, uh, and government under the, the Constitution does not have the right in, with a free press to be able to compel them to give up their sources, okay? Mm -hmm. And so a shield law is exactly that. It protects the journalists. Now, in my opinion, my humble opinion, we don't need shield laws because we have a constitution that says you can't do this, right? But we have freedom of press. Mm -hmm. uh, but, of course, government always wants to make a law in order to protect something because they're actually taking away something. Correct. So in this case, they're setting up a shield law in order to protect journalists and then trying through this process to define what a journalist actually is and who mm -hmm. actually qualifies to be a journalist. So Senator Dianne Feinstein and Senator Chuck Schumer are among those who are saying, well, you know, the, the journalist is someone who is a professional journalist, someone who works for a news-gathering organization. They've expanded out to citizen journalists, they say, and, mm -hmm. and some student journalists. However, Dianne Feinstein says she cannot just, you know, extend the privilege of being a journalist to some 17-year-old with a blog. Oh, yeah. She says if, Ed, if Edward Snowden, she says, were to go online and start his own website and had started putting this information up, he would claim he was a journalist. And she says, I, I can't give him that kind of privilege. Now, now notice the language used there. The language is, I cannot give him that privilege. And they're right. taking what is a constitutional right. It's in, it's in the Bill of Rights. It is our very first right given to mm -hmm. us is to have freedom of speech, religion, and the free press. Mm -hmm. And she is instead calling it a privilege, something government bestows upon a few people and has the right to take away. 
It's amazing, isn't it? And then they use the wordplay like leaker instead of whistleblower because a whistleblower is protected under shield law, correct? And then a leaker is somebody that is not protected. Is that correct under the 1980s that's, uh, whistleblower law? That's right. 1989, the Whistleblower Protection Act uh, protects any government employee who who reveals any illegal activity in a government agency. And by the way, it's, it's fascinating to talk about the collusion between media and government. The mm-hmm. Associated Press contacted all of its, after the whole Edward Snowden thing blew up, contacted all of its um, affiliates and said, do not refer to Edward Snowden as a whistleblower. Of course. He's a leaker. And so that actually came from the Associated Press telling other media not to refer to him as a whistleblower because he's not. Now, we did a piece on this. It was one of the very first uh, reality checks that we did independently. And mm-hmm. that piece talks about the fact that this is a simple issue. It's a mm-hmm. simple issue because it, it, there's a legal standard. What Did Edward Snowden reveal something that government was doing that was illegal? And you're easily able to prove that, yes, even under the FISA Act, even under the Patriot Act, the NSA was and continues to violate the rights of American citizens and to go beyond what legally has been granted to them. There's no question. But mm-hmm. media doesn't play that game. Instead, they play the game of, well, we're going to decide that he's a leaker because, you know, we've decided he's not what well, he's not. He's not a whistleblower because if mm-hmm. they call him that, he gets that, he gets that legal protection. Right, and then they go and parade him around, and then they say, "Is it you know?" Then they have the the proverbial infighting of the information that he's leaking, which was all, the majority of it was all public anyway. But you know, they want to make the spectacle of it. Is he is he a traitor to the country, or or is he you know is he a whistleblower? So they they basically shift the and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I got out of it. Um, they shift the the argument from whether he is a true leaker or a whistleblower to is he a traitor or is he a whistleblower? Correct. That's right. That's exactly what it turns into. It, it becomes it becomes is he a good person or is he a bad person? God, it always boils down to that simple fact, huh? Is it, it's just like this is good or bad, kind of like what you said before. It's just very um, almost Neanderthalic. It's just it, it's either good or bad. Correct. That's exactly right. And that's what it ultimately comes down to. And, and media loves those kinds of very simplistic narratives because they, they feel much better uh, about, about kind of this process. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's a mess uh, in that there are things in media that are facts. Mm-hmm. They treat them like opinions. And there mm-hmm. are things that are opinions and they're treated like facts. And it becomes so convoluted that the, the average viewer or listener can't tell the difference anymore. They really cannot tell the difference between opinion and fact um, mm-hmm. uh, on television. And one of the things that, that happens um, is that I think we've allowed the public as a whole to play into this. And the public, I believe, does not watch media anymore to be informed. The majority of people watch media in order to have their worldview validated. So they already hold a certain belief. They go to Fox, they turn on the TV, and they say, Validate my belief. Tell me that what I'm thinking is true. They go to CNN and say, tell me what I'm thinking is true. They go to MSNBC and say, tell me what I'm thinking is true. And, and if, and if the, the talking head or the reporter or whoever it is on any of those, those channels says something that the viewer disagrees with, not because they say, oh, well, you don't have your facts right, but because you don't fit their preconceived narrative, then the viewer's angry. 
the viewers for I don't believe you. You you need to validate what I came here to hear. Exactly. Good gosh, that's so crazy, isn't it? I mean, once you once I I'm, I studied marketing for four years in college, so I guess I watch television a little bit differently than than most people would. When I see a commercial, I don't see you know the happy family. I see the manipulation that they're trying to push and why they picked the two people in the commercial that they did and why they put the setting the way they did and and how to basically frame the product. So I guess that would lead me into my next question for you is, where do you see media going in the future? Well, I think the the rise of alternative media will continue uh, as long as we don't get shut down by CISPA and some of those attempts at it. But I think there will be a, a continued uh, rise of alternative media. There will be mm-hmm. a continued rise of um, bloggers and, and, and journalists and even you know sites like YouTube um, are so powerful because you really have people, and now a lot of it's you know funny stuff or silly stuff, but you have the ability today to bypass the traditional media outlets and get information to people in a way that just we've never had before in, in the history of humankind. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting to me that the time that we're living in, the, the collision of opportunity and technology all kind of coming together, I think you're going to see... Uh, people become even better informed than they are now. I think mm-hmm. government will continue to struggle. Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, a few months ago, before all the serious stuff blew up, had a statement that got very little coverage. But he had said that it was more difficult to govern today than at any time in history because mm-hmm. of the Internet. Because he says even during the Cold War it was easier because the Soviets just controlled their people and you know told them what to think. He says, and at that time it was a lot easier. He says now because of something called the Internet, it, it's very difficult to govern. Well, I wouldn't call it the Soviet Union was doing governing. <laughs> <But laughs> no, that's more, that's more dictation by numbers. Like, here, do this or we're going to shoot you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or throw you in an internment camp. There you go. Yeah, say, but even, even that aside, um, he's absolutely right. And, and he wasn't saying it in a positive way necessarily, but mm-hmm. I think he's absolutely right. I think... It is very difficult to govern because people know more. So when you start telling people that we have to go to war with Syria, for instance, and oh that gosh. Assad was killing his own people and he's the only one and he's the bad guy with the black hat and the good guys, the rebels, the freedom fighters with the white hats are coming in, you know, to get him, and the American mm-hmm. public says, no, we don't believe you. And that's all because of, I think, the collision of alternative media and social media. Alternative oh, media putting out good information, social media being the platform that's used to disseminate it, it's a very powerful combination. Do you think? Do you think that in the future that we'll see the um, the cable network providers just become basically internet pipes for people, and that there will be there will be no more cable television, and you'll be basically just subscribing to channels much like you would on YouTube, but on a on a grander scale, like any you know television show. I mean, look at Netflix and, and the platform that they've built. And, and creating their own, you know, even I guess they're up for Emmys or something like that, or a couple of their shows are up for Emmys because they're just really good content, but it's on an on-demand basis. Do you see that being an evolution of just the media in general, that the big dinosaurs will, will soon die off? Eventually, I think they will. Now, they may, some of them will probably adapt. Uh, they'll get people in there who will, you know, kind of adapt to whatever the streaming model is. But eventually, cable itself will disappear. I mean, cable sure. TV as we know it, you know, at, at some point I believe that that our kids won't even understand what that was. 
<laughs> the whole idea that you know you had you know channels here and the whole idea of that analog system um, mm-hmm. just doesn't make sense. So that will eventually go away. What takes its place uh, remains to be seen. And I think there is going to be an interesting kind of fight, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. for information because it's too powerful. Whoever has the influence over um, people um, has power. And so there are a lot of power brokers out there that want to control that. So I think there will be an interesting fight uh, in store in the next the next few years and decades. Now, um got you for a few more minutes here. So let me ask you um, a question. This has kind of died off in the media, and I don't know how much research you've done into this, but um, why do you think that the – the mass media was so quick to dismiss um Michael Hastings' death as a as a um I guess drug induced suicide. You know, I don't know a lot about uh the Hastings case other than the okay. fact that it, it seems like there's a lot of issues there with it. Uh okay. I have not actually looked into it that much. Uh so okay. I, I really couldn't speak on that too much. Well, that's that's fair, and it's one of those things that kind of was a flash pan in the media, and now it's it's kind of died off, and and it doesn't seem like anybody's done any follow up. So, I was just going to kind of get your take on that. But um, let's move back into Syria, and and what and what do you what do you think is going to happen here with like, like you said, the establishment's ability to basically control the population and and disseminate the narrative down to the populace and get everybody rah-rah, you know, the WMD model, which we basically saw propagated all over again. And now the American public's not buying it. What do you see is going to happen over there now that we've had this tremendous arms buildup in in that region and basically everybody's on, um, I guess, everybody's on a hold for right now? What do you see going on over there? Well, I I think eventually – the U.S. will strike. I think that they were very surprised by how much more informed the public was. Um, but I think it just says to them, we, we have to come up with uh, a better narrative. Because it really was the exact same script as Iraq in 2003. Mm-hmm. The UMD, you know, talk. It was word for word the same thing. Um, and so we find ourselves now, you know, in a position where, again, the public is more informed. They don't want to do it. They're not interested. So you've got to create something else, uh, something else to draw the U.S. into it. I think that, that uh, you know, those in government who have decided that they want to do this and they absolutely are not going to be stopped uh, will find a way to do it. But it will be very difficult. It's going to certainly be more difficult than it was uh, to get into Iraq, which t- took absolutely no effort at all. Uh, the American mm-hmm. people as a whole went along with it, despite the fact that there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever of WMDs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But we just didn't know better. We we trusted, and I think you know, twelve years after nine eleven, and ten years since we went into Iraq, uh, that the American public is in a very different place. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to remember there there are people now who are of voting age who were ten years old, eight years old when mm-hmm. uh, we went into Iraq. So <laughs> you have an entire generation that's growing up knowing nothing but war around the world, and and they're tired of it. They're really genuinely tired of it and ready to make some change happen. Now, what what happens when the – now that I guess the the establishment has lost the control of the populace, I mean, is it it another – I guess I don't want to say false flag because that sounds really, I mean, really over the top, I guess. But, you know, we can't rule it out of these situations because it's happened in history. But, you know – 
You say that there are people, obviously, we have people that listen to this show, understand the military-industrial complex and, and, and how they have a very vested interest into selling new equipment and and more weapons to, to foreign countries and to our own, you know, into our own government. So how do we how do they get us over there? I mean, is it does or here's a better question for you. Does Obama get impeached if he does this without Congress? No. No. He he, he won't he won't be impeached um irregardless of what happens because <laughs> okay. the the both sides want him to go. There are a lot of people who are starting to to wake up to it, and members of Congress who are saying no. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, both the parties want to have that power. The Democratic Party wants the power to be sure. able to unilaterally go to war. The Republican Party wants that power. Sure. And so to impeach a president over that would require that you're going to say this is going to be the standard operating procedure for the misuse of war powers, and neither party actually wants that. Now you've got guys like Thomas Massey, Massey and Justin Amash and Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, uh, who are out there pushing against this stuff and saying, you know, mm-hmm. we, we do not want it. And they're honest when they say they don't want to go and, and they're going to fight it. But but there's no way right now they would have the ability to do that because party le- leadership on both sides would quash it. Does the establishment not understand that if you did something like that geopolitically, what that would do to our reputation around the world, and not only that, would would possibly bring in a, a, a larger, I guess, a larger war in that region and completely destabilize the region? Or do you think that they just don't care? I'm not, I'm not sure if they care, um, and and certainly they would have to realize, um, you know, the, the dangers of of what this means, especially when. Um, Syria is not Iraq, and Syria is not uh, Libya. So Mm -hmm. you were able to get away with that in in some of those instances. But I also think that Russia and China watching the United States um, are far more emboldened than they were even two or three years ago right now. So Mm -hmm. uh, the U.S., I think, around the world looks pretty weak. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we we look increasingly weak. But I think the way to look strong is not to say, well, then we need to bomb someone else to demonstrate that we're strong. <laughs> and that seems to be what we keep hearing is, oh, the, the rest of the world thinks we're weak, so we better blow somebody up. No, maybe we ought to step back and say it is it is this, you know, kind of imperial, imperialistic empire building that is making mm-hmm. us look weak around the world, especially when we're completely bankrupt and we're aware oh, of to do it. It's so sick. And then Bernanke just announced today he's going to continue QE Infinity and beyond or whatever it is now. So, I mean, oh, yeah. just inflating inflating our currency even more and more. So it's just it's going to end. Um, I don't I don't mean to say like it's going to end, but all empires end when they run out of money, ladies and gentlemen. And that's where we're headed. So, you know, it's it's really sad. I was hoping you were going to give me some some kind of glimmer of hope there that we wouldn't trot off to war as we do all these times when there's any kind of political distraction or any kind of uh, rumblings of an economic downturn. It seems to be the default reaction of these people is to trot us off to the war and distract us. But now we're in a position where the distractions aren't working anymore, and it's becoming you know less and less, I guess, a easy for pill for me to swallow that. That we might actually go and do this. So, it's, well, hold um, on, hold on. But let me say mm-hmm. this because I, I'm a guy who goes around telling people that liberty is rising, and oh, and, absolutely, and I believe yeah. that it is. Mm-hmm. So let me give you some hope. 
even if even if on this in this occasion we do wind up you know firing missiles into Syria, and we might not, um, mm-hmm. but if but even if it does happen, we should still be excited about the idea that it has been postponed, it has been mm-hmm. delayed, it has been held back by an American public and an alternative media. Absolutely. So that's a huge victory. Um, and I just I don't want people if if something does happen where but we still move forward on this, and, and mm-hmm. there is you know, a, a, a cruise missile strike against Damascus at some point, um, don't feel like, oh, well, here we go again. Not necessarily. I, I think that the, the public's in a different place, and I think we have better information. So that's positive. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I would say this. You know, when we talk about the Federal Reserve, we talk about the printing of money, the buying of bonds, we talk about the, the, the really difficult place that the U.S. is in right now. Um, mm-hmm. One thing I would I want to encourage people in is whatever community you're in, really start to work to build out within your local community um, mm-hmm. like-minded people who have have similar beliefs and values, uh, and start building community with those people. Because if the system at some point does crash, and if you know we end up in a really bad position where where economically the nation crashes, mm-hmm. you're going to need to be in a strong community, and you're going to need to be with people um, that you can depend on and count on. So. Don't wait until it looks like it's all falling down to start developing that community. You, you, sh- you need to start developing that community now because if the republic, you know, comes crashing down, someone's going to have to rebuild it. And, mm-hmm. and we know that the system that we're in right now is unsustainable, but that also means that, that if it comes down, it can be built back up again. And so well, that's only going to happen if we're in strong communities. And I really want to encourage people. That. Absolutely, and also encourage you know people to listen to this broadcast and to check out your site to to educate other people. I mean, if if you have this information and you understand where what Ben and I are talking about here, it, it's it's almost your I guess I don't want to say patriotic duty because that sounds you know, very status, but it it is almost to the point where it's almost a self preservation that you need to get as many people aware of this information, like Ben said, and and tuned into what's going on, so that if something like he says cruise missiles do go in, then we can really put constituent pressure on the politicians and and really change the narrative up there because. If there's one thing that politicians really love, and that's that's what the constituents want to hear, and they will do whatever you want to say because, man, do they like being elected, and they love that big chair. So the more pressure we can put on them and use the political tools that we have at our disposal, I think the better off we're going to be. So, Ben, uh, we got a few more minutes here with you. I think we got 15 minutes left. Um, front and center on your radar screen, what, um, what's big with BenSwan.com right now? Well, we're actually going to be releasing uh, a piece tomorrow at noon uh, on Monsanto and crony capitalism. We're going to be talking about uh, the relationship between um, Monsanto and government and talking about some of the, you know, in general, some of the concerns that people have. But really, at the end of the day, I, I think Monsanto, more than anything else, whether you like GMOs and you think they're fine or, or mm-hmm. you're worried about them, there are people on both sides of that argument. One thing mm-hmm. that's undoubtable is is the relationship between um, government and the private sector that it just doesn't work. And so you've got all these people in this country who are concerned about capitalism, how capitalism is evil and capitalism is bad. Capitalism is mm-hmm. not bad. Crony capitalism is very bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and crony capitalism, which is, another term for it is fascism, um, mm-hmm. is, a, is a terrible, terrible system in government. Uh, and yet that's the system that we have right now. So we're going to be talking about that. It will be released tomorrow at noon. 
And also we do have a a story we put out today that's getting a lot of traffic. It's a school that's actually – it was a a child who took a test at a school, and the question had to do with the constitutionality (laughs) of a police officer confiscating a gun from someone who has a permit if they're pulled over at a traffic stop. And Mm -hmm. the student said, no, they didn't have the right and the Constitution – and the teacher marked that answer as incorrect and said, yes, yes, they do have the right. And so uh, that story is up there right now. You should check it out. A lot of people are, are, are clicking on it and looking at it. It's, uh, it's a, I, th- I don't think it's terribly surprising, but it's very unfortunate. And it's something that, again, we, we've got to work to change those things. Yeah, and I don't know if you've, you've got a screen view or something, but that was actually the next question on my agenda. So. <laughs> Now that, that that does really raise an interesting point of view when you do talk about you know government running our education system in general, and then the you know the new standards and practices they're going to come out with with their new Common Core. Is this going to be a quote Common Core? I guess is this going to be one of their prongs to Common Core? Is rewriting the um, the Constitution or or interpreting it? or taking it out of context and then publishing that into books because you did pull out the other one here and I'm just looking at the article that I think was in um was it in Texas that they had the um the second amendment says that the people have a right to keep and bear arms in a state militia which is not That's what right. it says at all. Not at so, all. Now, uh, do you, you homeschool your kids, correct? I do. Correct. Okay, great. Now, what would you say um, about Common Core? Do you know enough about Common Core to comment? Is this something that um, that people should be actively trying to resist, or is this something that um, – go ahead. Yeah, they absolutely should be. Listen, um, I've actually done some, some stuff on Common Core in the past, and uh, Common Core is essentially set up – it was originally set up to just create common test standards uh, mm-hmm. around the country. And, you know, there's been a lot of, of independent – work on it, and folks who have looked at it and said it's a race to the middle. A lot of states had to actually lower their testing standards in order to fit the Common Core um, kind of setup. The idea is it was promoted by the National Governors Association, but it turns out it's not a bunch of governors signed on to it. That's just a trade organization out of D.C. It's actually mm-hmm. funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Oh, and uh, Common Core originally started out as just we want to create common testing so everyone's mm-hmm. on the same page. Well, now it's, of course, as with all these things, has shifted over to curriculum. And so Common Core has actually been around now for about five years, I believe. But mm-hmm. it's only recently really started picking up steam in terms of, of the pushback because they've now moved over to curriculum, saying that we're going to create a single kind of curriculum that will run throughout the whole country. Oh, and, you know, there's a lot of issues with this. And it goes back to, you know, how much say do parents, local school districts, teachers have in curriculum, and, and I think they should have a say, and right now they, they, they certainly don't. This will make it a much worse. But isn't that, oh my God, as you mentioned fascism, and lo and behold, we run into another you know great form of fascism slash communism, and that would be government control of education. Um, are we really turning into the United Soviet states here? I mean, this is really what it looks like with the crony capitalism on one side, the federal government control of education on another side. Are we turning into a modern-day um, Soviet Union, perhaps? Well, you know, I think the uh, the Soviets in many ways wanted to have the kind of power that that's being used in the U.S. right now, but they didn't have the technology. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology today allows government to to watch every single thing that you do, uh, to mm-hmm. monitor all of your activities, uh, and it's almost impossible to get away from them. And there is this relationship between the private sector and, and businesses and government, corporations and government. So you have right now a lot of people upset about Apple and their and their fingerprint scanner, you know, mm-hmm. and saying don't don't get involved with that, um, you know, and. and more and more we're seeing that collusion, and it's just its not a good thing. It's a very dangerous thing. Um, and I think a lot of people, especially folks who candidly, you know, grew up during the Cold War and watched the Soviets, and they were fearful of them and, and thought to themselves, I'm so glad I'm not over there and I'm over here. Um, <laughs> I think those people must be struggling to say, well, where are we right now? <laughs> Absolutely, and that was one of the things that um, I made a comment on after the NSA stuff broke, and and I was one of those, you know, evil, weird people that actually read the Telecommunications Act and understood what the you – know, I, I worked in telecom for about three and a half years, and I had one of my engineers break down before this even all went public the different routers and switches that were used. And then when I would ask him the switch that was actually the AT&T box switch that they didn't have a specific name for it, but it turns out that it was the NSA filter that went right behind the the um the AT&T box. He would just basically say, "Well, that's um that's another switch." I'm like, "Well, who owns that switch?" He's like, "AT&T does, but I don't know what they do with it." And I'm like, "Oh, good lord." And then I saw the graph come out a couple of weeks ago with the NSA and it it showed the breakdown of how everything is captured in real time and it and it made it kind of I guess really un, unsettling for me that you're exactly right. We're in a position now where there is no sense of privacy. And there was a there was a famous um, hacker convention back in 2008 where the the keynote speaker got up and said, um, and I guess they've known this for a while too, is that he said, you know, you have no privacy now, get over it. So now we have to find ways to manipulate it. So, what does the American public do now, um, trying to get all of these constitutional rights that are being violated? the basic founding document of our nation. What do we do, Ben? How do we push back on the system? And let's talk about solutions. Are there are there solutions to take down this or to slay this, you know, monolith that we have now called big government? Well, I think there is a solution. I think the solution is, and I've been telling people this at a variety of different uh, places around the country, but what I really want to encourage people in is to start working to dismantle um, the the growing local government in your communities. So when you have, for instance, a mayor uh, or a county commission or a city council that's accepting huge amounts of federal dollars to build streetcars, you need to get in there and remove those people from office. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've got to push back the same way that Agenda 21 is spread around the country is the same way that you can push back. Uh, but you've got to get involved. You've, you've got to get liberty-minded uh, people elected to local office. Uh, if you have a police chief who believes in policing for profit, who believes that red light cameras and, and traffic cameras are a way of generating revenue, so we need to give people as many tickets as possible in order to make money for our little village or our town or what or city, uh, you need to replace your mayor and then fire your police chief. And so there is a, a process for that. I think that it has to happen there first. We talk a lot about the federal government, about the White House, about Congress. But sure. candidly, even if you change those things, it's not going to really make your life more free unless we Mm -hmm. do something about what's going on on the local level. And that's where the change has to begin. And, you know, it's 
it's happening. I was mm-hmm. just in Minnesota this past weekend talking to Liberty, Minnesota, and got a chance to meet some of these great activists there who were working in different small towns and, mm-hmm. and small communities around Minnesota who are really making these changes that are making it happen. Uh, and that's how it has to happen. If, if you cannot manage as a group to work within your own community to say, well, we have a, a city council and a mayor who are spending all this money and they keep raising property taxes. And if you can't get control of that, how are mm-hmm. you ever going to control what's happening on the federal level? You're never going to be able to. And I think that one of the one of the common defaults, and I am um, not to divulge my day job to everybody, but I've talked about it before, but I I do legislative research for an organization. That's my job is to go out and poll people and to talk to people and to and to talk to business owners. And and I do see I do see a section of society that's pretty much given up. And and my job I guess is you know, doing the job that I do is to try to get people more politically involved in the process and show them that they can make a difference. And I think that that's um, that's something that I'm going to take to the bank, and that's to really encourage people to do things at the local level because I think that when when people think of government, they think of this big, you know, the 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 white buildings in Washington, the White House, the Capitol, all those things, and they're all grandiose and it's just very intimidating. And, and people feel powerless. But I think that the more the people educate themselves, the, the more they're going to realize that those those tools are there to make you feel powerless so that you don't take action, so that you do do exactly what you're doing, and that's sit around and, and wait for the FEMA trucks to come get you or whatever their their belief systems are. So, But, um, Ben, thank you so much for the time. I would like for you to plug anything that you would like to plug here before, uh, before we let you go, and um, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Um, do you got a website other than benswan.com that people can find you at, or Facebook or Twitter? Do you have a Twitter handle? Facebook, uh, Facebook.com slash Benswan Reality Check. Uh, you okay. can also just, or you can just search Ben Swan in the search. It'll pop up for you. Um, and then also you can uh, check us out uh, on YouTube. Uh, mm-hmm. You can see all of our videos there as well, and that's YouTube.com slash Ben Reality Check. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the time, Ben. I look forward to having you on in the future. Thanks so much. All right, buddy. Take care. Okay. Thanks. There he goes, everybody. Ben Swan of BenSwan.com. Man, that was fun talking to people like that. People that are on the grassroots really trying to make change, and that's that's really what it boils down to, everybody. You know, as I say on the show, and as the actual tagline is for the broadcast, and that's get a friend, get informed, and get involved, because it's much easier to get involved, like you said, when you have friends and like-minded people to get involved with and and to go out and to try to make change. So whether it's you, just the individual holding up a billboard and getting four cops show up to your sine wave, or if it's you, the individual going to your local city council and holding these people accountable, that's what we all need to do, and we all need to start pushing back on the system at every level, state, local, you name it. Um, learn your rights, everybody. Learn your rights when you get pulled over and learn your rights when a cop questions you, what you can say, what you can't say, all that good stuff. So that's going to close it out for that segment. Now let's move on to – man, that was fun. Um, let's move on to the Obama Live Fest that happened on Sunday. And the reason that I want to pull this up is because I would like for everybody to understand that what we're talking about here is is a real heartfelt – Lie to the American people, once again, as Ben talks about, the narrative, and this is the one thing that we do have to watch for, is that 
the narrative, once it comes out, will be propagated by the larger mass media, and then once, like he explained before, will be disseminated to the the local affiliates, and then the stories will run. So that's what we're up against. So here is the first um, clip of Obama with uh, George Stephanopoulos on, um, I believe it was Sunday morning, and I think I cut it right at the lie, so I'll be able to break this down for you. So I will see you guys in two minutes. Just two weeks ago. We're definitely in a better position. Why? Uh, keep in mind that my entire goal throughout this exercise is to make sure that what happened on August 21st does not happen again, that we do not see over 1,000 people, over 400 children, subjected to poison gas, uh, something that is a violation of international law and is a violation you're of that won't happen again? decency. Well, I think we have the possibility of making sure that it doesn't happen again. Think about where we were. Uh, this event happens, and the initial response is the Syrians act as if they don't know anything about it. At that point, they're not even acknowledging that they've got chemical weapons. They the didn't Russians sign the treaty. Are they don't have to. protecting the Syrians, suggesting that there's no possibility that the Assad regime might have done this. And the inspectors weren't even in yet. But yet and you said as that a they consequence of the pressure that we've applied over the last couple of weeks, <laughs> we have Syria first, for the first time acknowledging that it has chemical weapons, agreeing to join uh, the convention that prohibits the use of chemical weapons, oh. and the Russians, uh, their primary sponsor, saying that they will push Syria to get all of their chemical weapons out. The distance that we've traveled over these couple of weeks is remarkable. And my position and the United States position has been consistent throughout, which is that uh, the underlying civil conflict in Syria is terrible. Uh, I believe that because of Assad's actions, his response to peaceful protests, uh, we've created a civil war in Syria that has led to 100,000 people being killed and 6 million people being displaced. But what I've also said is that the United States can't get in the middle of somebody else's civil war. We're not going to put troops on the ground. We can't enforce uh, militarily a settlement there. But what in the we past, can he do, said he had to go. What we can do, what we can do is make sure that the worst weapons, the indiscriminate weapons that don't distinguish between a soldier and an infant, are not used. Kind of like a drone strike. No, 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 those are okay. They've got American flags on it when they go in and kill random people. That's completely that's completely justified. That is just so crazy to me. It just ew, it creeps me out. And I understand, man, that you're out there selling an agenda and all that good stuff, but I just don't get it. I, I really don't understand. And and the way that the voice inflection changes and the way that he manipulates the audience by saying you know, we don't know, you know, now Russia's saying this, but we do know this, and we've done this, and we've done this, and we've done this, and we've done this. Once again, making it look like that we're doing these things in order to in order to bring about peace in the region. That is not what it's all about. And he said in this piece with Ben Swan earlier when um, when Ben was asking him those questions about, you know, well, we need to do some nation-building at home, and they always talk about nation-building, and I can't remember who came up with that stupid tagline. I want to say it's FDR, but it's talking about nation-building. That's a um, code word for empire. Anytime you hear nation-building, that is code word for empire. 
we need to go destroy somebody. So, yeah, and um, one of uh, one of my friends here in the chat actually just said the hypocrisy, and that is 100% correct, and you are on point. So, it is um, it is the Twilight Zone. I mean, you know, our bombs, since we can shoot missiles at you, those are completely fine, but if you use a chemical on somebody, and they always like to tout out the 400 children, the children, the children, and if you watched Obama's speech... And uh, Josh and I did a break- breakdown on it, and I've got to get the uh, I got to get the audio from him because um, we did a really interesting. We basically watched the entire speech um, together at the same time on separate screens and commented over it. And um, and when he gets to talking about to my friends on the left, think about the children. To my friends on the right, think about blowing shit up. That's basically what he said. I'm sorry to curse, but that's exactly what he says. Think about having a strong military presence again. It's just like, I mean, and, and as soon as you understand the manipulation, and like Ben broke it down so well, where he said that the default answer for the left is always that it's a that if we can control guns and we could just get a handle on guns, all this stuff would stop, and that's always the default. And then on the right-hand side, it's always a jihadi Muslim extremist, you know, trying to, you know, create Sharia law in America or some garbage like that. So, I mean, that's basically what we're looking at here is just a mass propaganda stream. So here is the other portion of the speech. And then look good. I got all kinds of Obama clips in here. I should um, – yeah, I'm going to go to a, a couple of my favorite Obama clips. And so here's the next if one. we get that accomplished – Mm-hmm. then we may also have a foundation to begin what has to be an international process uh, in which Assad's sponsors, primarily Iran and Russia, recognize mm. that this is terrible for the Syrian people, and they are willing to come in a serious way to arrive at some sort of political settlement that would uh, deal with the underlying terrible conflict. And, and President Putin has become your unlikely partner. Yeah. Uh, in this, the and, one that you, you know, even in this op-ed, which is sort of a lot of controversy yeah. here in the United mm-hmm. States, he said there's every reason to believe that the rebels are the ones who use the chemical weapons. So does here that tell the, you he's willing to lie to protect Assad? Well, here comes the nobody lie. around the world takes seriously the idea that the rebels uh, were the perpetrators. He of wrote this it attack. in the New York Times. Well, I understand. What I said is nobody around the world takes seriously the idea that the rebels perpetrated this attack. And then when he calls your secretary of state a liar, that's what you say to him. That's a good idea, you know, because, you know, Russia doesn't have any natural gas or anything like that. They don't have any minerals or anything that they can fall back on in case their currency goes kaput. Nope, America, just keep pushing buttons, man. Just keep pushing those buttons. This is absolutely insane. So, anyway, let's uh, let's cover some news, shall we? Um this is the one um, we already talked about the the shooter and the Senate bill. We covered all that stuff, so that was fun. Well, it was really cool calling, talking to Ben. I've uh, been watching his stuff for a long time. Big fan of his work, so didn't want to gush over him on air because that's just amateur hour. So, anyway, um, let's talk about the future of the human population. Obviously, Ray Kurzweil thinks we're all going to merge with machines and everything's going to be peaches doesn't tell you that he's going to kill 99% of you before all this stuff happens, but hey, you know, it's fine. It's all for the people. 
So just look forward to merging with machines because, you know, that's what the world or the universe needs is 9 million machines out there. Or we'll probably be like 6.5 million, billion, excuse me, by then. So here is the article from Mail Online, otherwise known as the Daily Mail. <clears throat> and it says, um, we will be uploading our entire minds into computers by 2045 and our bodies will be replaced by machines within 90 years. So everybody just get fat as hell. I mean, you're not going to have to worry about your figure in 30 years. You're just going to be uh, assimilated into the matrix. Thank God. I've been really you know, bored with reality because there's nothing that ever goes on out here. And the article reads, in just over 30 years, humans will be able to upload their entire minds to computers and become digitally immortal. How, ex how exciting. An event called the Singularity. <laughs> and I think I know who just made that comment. That is really funny. And I won't read it on air, but um, stop making funny comments, you comedian. According to the futurist from Google, Ray Kurzweil, um, director of engineering at Google, which he transformed from making excellent pianos and all kinds of different uh, computer chips and stuff to now be running Google, which I'm sure he – you're welcome, Jake. Um well, thanks for making me laugh in a really crappy uh, situation. All right, starting over with the article after I remove myself from the chat window because I'll start laughing. It says, Ray Kurzweil, the director of engineering at Google, also claims that the biological parts of our body will be replaced by mechanical parts, and this could happen as early as 2100. So cool. My daughter will be an animatronic robot. Awesome. Hopefully she'll be able to go through a black hole and find out what's on the other side. Kurzweil made claims during his conference at the uh, Global Futures 2045 in, in, um, international con or International Congress in New York at the weekend. That was really bad writing right there. Oh, it's British. Never mind. The conference was created by a Russian multi-billionaire, um, Dmitry Ishtakov, a featured visionary, talks about the world will look in 2045. And, and Kurzweil said, based on conservative estimates, the amount of computation you will need to functionally simulate, brain, uh, functionally simulate a human brain will be able to expand the scope of our intelligence a billion fold. That will be pretty trippy. He refers to Moro's law of states of power of computing doubling on average every two years, quoting the developments on generics or genetic sequencing and 3D printing. Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near, he plots to develop the journey towards the singularity in a graph. Remember, this is the guy that said he doesn't know God, but he, he plans to become him one day. The singularity also refers to a digital immortality because brains and a person's intelligence will be digitally stored forever even after they die. Cool. And then the government will go through and predictive programming, and um, yeah, there goes your free will. Awesome. He also added the possibility through neutral engineering and referenced these recent strides that made – or recent strides, excuse me. Good gosh. Um, made towards modeling the brain and technologies were – which can replace biological functions. For example, um, each study, given that the life science include a a collecular implant, an implant which is attached to the blade to the brain's um, collocal nerve and electro electrically stimulates it to restore the hearing of someone who is deaf. That's what you see these people walking around with on their little chips by the ears. For example, how to include technology to restore motor skills in a nervous system that is damaged. 
Um, earlier this year, doctors from Cornell University used 3D printing to create a prosthetic ear using uh, cells of cartilage. A solid plastic mold was printed and then filled with a densely lined coagulant gel. The researchers then added cartilage cells into the car- um, collage- collagen-, collagen matrix. Good God, there's some tough words in here. I've been drinking tea tonight too, everybody. I'm not drinking any alcohol. This is kind of kind of trippy. Kurzweil was um, invited to the conference because he had previously written books about the idea of the singularity. Expanding on this idea, Marnet Rothbart, the CEO of a biotech company, United Therapeutics, um, introduced the idea of mind clones. Oh, that sounds fun. Like AI all over again. It's a really bad Will Smith movie. These are the digital versions of humans that can live forever and create mind flies that replace the storage aspects of our personalities. She said it would also run as kind of a software for consciousness and told the Huffington Post the first company that develops mindware will have as much as a thousand Googles. That's pretty trippy. Rothbard added that the presence of mindware could lead to replacing body parts with non-biological parts. And it goes on to say the concept that Kurzweil also discussed was on the basis of his fanta- on his book Fantastic Voyage. In the book, he discusses immortality and how he believes the humans will develop. He said that we're going to become increasingly non-biological to the point where the non-biological part dominates the biological part and is not important anymore. The fact that the non-biological part, the machine part, will be so powerful it can completely model and understand the biological part. So even if the biological part went away, it wouldn't even make a difference. There's a lot of biological stuff going on here. Well, also the non-biological bodies, we can create bodies with nanotechnology. We can create virtual bodies and virtual reality in which which the virtual reality will be as realistic as the actual reality, which would be simulation theory, which I completely subscribe to that we are living in now, but who knows. The virtual bodies will be detained and or will be detailed and convincingly uh, or detailed and convincing as real bodies. We do need a real body. Our intelligence is directed towards the body and doesn't have to to be this fragile. A biological body would be subject to all kinds of failure modes. This is kind of trippy stuff. This is making my head hurt. But I think we'll all have a choice in bodies. We'll certainly have a we'll certainly be routinely changing a part of our body through viral reality. And today, you can see if you have a different body in something like Second Life, but it is just a picture on a screen. Research has now shown that people actually begin to subjectively identify with their avatar. Interesting. But in the future, you're not going to be a little picture in a viral or in a viral environment that you're looking at. It will feel like that is your body and more in the environment and more your body in the virtual environment and it can be realistic as it can be as realistic as real reality. We will be routinely able to change our bodies very quickly in as well as our environments. If we have a radical life extension, only we would get profoundly bored. We would run out of things to do and new ideas. In addition to radical life extension, we're going to have radical life expansion. We're going to have a million of viral environments 
to exploring ongoing, literally expand our brains. Right now, we only have 300 million patterns organized in a grand hierarchy that create ourselves. <clears throat> but we can make that 300 billion or 300 trillion. At the same time, we've expanded it to, to the frontal cortex and created language, art, and science. Just think of the quantum leaps that we can we can't even imagine today if we expand it to our to near our cortex again. So that's some pretty trippy stuff. If you follow my broken English and my broken reading through there, that is um, ugh, ouch, that hurt. All right, so um, now let's move into some. Math! Woohoo! Quantitative easing, everyone. New poll out. With the end of the Fed's QE in sight, the U.S. public says, huh? Yeah, pretty much the public has no clue what quantitative easing is. So here's an article out of Reuters that was published 15 hours ago. It said the Federal Reserve this week is expected to start winding down an epic economic stimulus that is created or that is credited with helping the United States claw back from the deepest slump since the Great Depression. Okay, so everybody that doesn't have a job, we're um we're clawing back and we're completely we're completely fine now. So the Fed's two point eight trillion quantitative easing program has, among other things, lifted stock prices to record highs. Yes, with inflated dollars, absolutely. Driven interest rates to record lows. Well, that's what the plan was, and to and put a floor under whatever reeling housing market. Yeah, that's going to go tits up here in a little bit. Yet barely a quarter of Americans even know what it is. A poll leading up to the Fed's pivotal decision expected Wednesday afternoon found that just 27% of American adults could correctly pick the correct definition of quantitative easing among the five possible answers. Great. So you're almost as good as a guess. Way to go, public. Woohoo! All right. Quantitative easing, or QE for short, is when the Fed buys bonds in order to push down interest rates and boost the economy. You mean monetized debt, but they never say that, but that's fine. An ongoing Reuters Ipsum poll included interviews with 200 or 857 adults between September 12th and September 16th. The results credibly in the results credibly inter, interval, a measure of its accuracy is a plus or minus 3.9 percentage points, which is actually better than your your polls that you see in presidential races that are usually plus or minus 5, which are really bad polls to begin with. Anyway, sorry for the stats lesson. Let's continue. The Fed's bond buying program, particularly the current third round known as QE3 or QE Infinity and Beyond, as Ben Bernanke turns into Buzz Lightyear, I guess, has been controversial both at home and abroad. While some question is of its effectiveness, Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke says it helped to bring down the unemployment and avert a damaging cycle of deflation. Hmm. Let me read that again. Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke says it helps bring down unemployment and avert a damaging cycle of deflation. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are listening to this podcast and you would like to educate yourself on how bad the Federal Reserve is screwing you and how this is all planned out, please search, Google search this. I'll actually do it now and see if I can find it. Ben Bernanke's speech on deflation that was given, I think, 
Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm going to have the Oracle tell me if I'm wrong here or not. Well, I've just had a, a freeze up here. I think my whole computer just froze. Can you guys still hear me? Oh, there it goes. Never mind. Had an Ase Frio on my um, on my screen here. Okay, so Ben Bernanke speech deflation 2002 November. Ha <laughs> ha! Gosh, I'm awesome. So. If you guys Google search or uh, start page or whatever you guys use, Google search Ben Bernanke speech deflation, and that will be November 21st of 2002, which, if you read the entire speech, he outlines exactly what he will do throughout this entire process, and he does not miss a beat. It is unbelievable. So, anyway, Bernanke has signaled that he would look to reduce the program this year, and and, and at the end... Of, Excuse me. Has signaled that he will look to reduce the program this year, and end it next year, and keep up the short-term rates low for many months afterwards in order to continue to encourage investment and hiring. Close but no cigar is the next line. Twelve percent of the respondents thought QE3 was a computer-assisted program that the Fed uses to manipulate the dollar. The other eleven percent thought it was a part of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform legislation, which was a joke. To be sure, two of the most popular incorrect answers, a way the Fed makes it easier for commercial banks to borrow money from the Fed and relend it to its customers, and the other one is when the Fed repeatedly lowers its official interest rate. Really, people? How do you get lower than zero? Wow, this country is in trouble. After all, quantitative easing is geared toward reducing borrowing costs. Well, of course it is, but then they monetize debt on the back end. But for the Fed, it has emphasized the most important communications are how much effectiveness its policies depend on the public's understanding of their impact on inflation and employment. And the fact that 30 or 73% of the respondents can't define the critical program suggests that the Fed has a serious communication challenge. No, they have a seriously dumb population. Not that I don't love you guys, but come on, get informed. Let's go. In particular, the Fed officials have stressed how important it is for the public to not equate a reduction in quantitative easing to a rise in interest rates. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. Nevertheless, the Fed will will telegraph its intention to pare back. <laughs> very, very true, and that was perfect. Nevertheless, the Fed will telegraph the intention to pare back its bond buying has raised interest rates over the last five months. Oh, but it's not going to if we – never mind. The markets will be watching closely for the size of the reduction. If the public does not understand what QE3 is in the first place, drawing that distinction from – drawing that distinction will be difficult, said Anderson Scott, chief economist at the Bank of West in – Bank of the West in San Francisco. I think they understand the Fed is trying to stimulate the economy, but I don't think they understand the mechanics of how it works. You think? Said Anderson, it means people get the message that interest rates are going up. But but Bernanke said that it they weren't that doesn't equate to them going up. Anyway, this is this is just mind-boggling. The two articles that I chose to read are just absolutely mind mind screws here. 
What a great podcast up until about 12 minutes ago when I just completely started to fall apart at the seams here. So stay with me, everybody. We got nine minutes to go. We got it. Uh, dumb down. All right, great. And it's negative effects on the economy, he said. Margaret Maria, a 60-year-old home health aide who lives in Truth or Consequences, Mexico, really, was stumped by the question in, on connotative easing. She works at a part-time job for 8 and $9 an hour. Good for her. Says the wages aren't keeping up with the cost. Duh. It's all a big plan. Enjoy it. She thinks unemployment is too high. Mm-hmm. And she does not know the Fed is charged with maximizing employment and stabilizing prices, let alone the quanti- what quantitative easing is. She thought it might have to do with regulation. Good for you. I'm asking my husband if he's heard anything, but he does stocks and all that. Oh, okay, good. She said in the interview, he doesn't really know either. Oh, that's great. So just put your money in the casino and have no idea how the system works. That sounds safe. Uh, Michael Warford, a Columbia professor, and one of his writings on QE3 have been hugely influential at the Fed. Oh, imagine that. And the global central banks. Miranda's lack of knowledge shouldn't matter. The the beliefs of the general public isn't the primary channel that the Fed is is relying upon. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Uh, This is awesome. This is so awesome. More relevant, he said, is whether the bond traders understand the Fed's intent. They... If they drive interest rates down in response to QE, the program can be effective if those low rates then drive spending. Yeah, that's there you go. There's some just basic economics. Lynchmart, the Lynchmart USA resident uh, Linda Lamont, 49, lost her job to the in the Great Recession, and oh, we're calling it the Great Recession now because it's not a depression. It's got to be a recession, even though it has you know, all. Markings of a depression, but whatever. Now works part-time as a communication specialist uh, for an economic research firm. She picked the wrong definition of QE3, but a conversation with her made it clear that Lamont understands the Fed's goals and specifically the goals of bond-buying program. She supports a cutback. Good for you. It's almost like we've got Wall Street... Dependent on that money, she said. Mm-hmm. There you go. Michael Griggs, a 67-year-old retiree, also picked the incorrect answer when he says that the Fed is repeatedly lowering its official rate. But in an interview, Griggs was able to articulate one of the Fed's primary goals to control inflation. There's only three of them. And he knew one of the QE objectives was to reduce unemployment. Well, good for you. But to most, such a fuzzy understanding of what has become a critical monetary policy tool is not enough. And it says in quote, when making investments or taking out a loan, it is terribly important that we understand how the decisions are taking uh, the decisions taken in Washington affect us, said Carl Tannenbaum, a Northern Chief um Northern Trust chief economist. QE is unlike any tra- uh, the Fed's traditional tool of raising and lowering short-term interest rates, and the public needs to understand its benefits, its risk, and to better inform uh, to better inform their decisions. The Fed at times has done a very has not done a very good job of explaining what all what it is all up to. Tannenbaum said, 
it's fair to say that the state of the financial literacy of the United States offers an important room for improvement. Amen. So, gosh, as I just absolutely butchered those two articles, I am so sorry, audience. But uh, I appreciate all the love for me. So, let's... um. Let's move on to one more financial article, and then that will be it for the show. And I think I'm going to jump on to the journalistic revolution after this. So if you guys want to catch some after hours with myself, feel free to pop over there. Those guys are good stuff. They've been on my podcast a couple of times, and it's time for me to return the favor and crash their party. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, you can follow them at journalisticrevolution.com and also at uh, – I think they have a YouTube channel, Journalistic Revolution. Good guys doing good stuff trying to inform the people and um, get you away from a few status tendencies. So here we go. Obama asked leaders to push Congress to raise the debt limit. Absolutely, because what would America be if we didn't have more debt, right? Come on. This is America. Debt and bombs. That's all we got. That's all we got anymore. Debt bombs and drones and, um, and a serious mental illness problem. All right. Anyway. President Barack Obama appealed to business leaders on Wednesday to urge Congress to approve an increase in the United States debt limit without any conditions attached to and avoid a default of possibly as early as mid-November. And here's what he said. It's going to be important for all of you over the next several weeks to understand what's at stake and to make sure you are using your influence in whatever way that you can get back to what's used to be a regular order around here, he told a business roundtable. I have no idea what the hell that means. But it says the president's speech is <coughs> the president's speech to the top hundred corporate execs was part of an effort to focus on the domestic budget and economic issues. Hey, how, here's an idea. Why don't you have a budget that gets approved first? How about that? Oh, yeah, we haven't had one of those for five years. But, but hey, you know, go tell the corporate people how to run their business. That's a great idea. What a joke. What a joke all this stuff is. Domestic budget – or excuse me. The president's speech was the, to the top 100 corporate execs was a part of an effort to focus on domestic budget and economic issues after a month of – dominated by foreign policy and mainly conflict in Syria. I'm happy to negotiate with them around the budget, he said. What I will not do is create a habit, a pattern, which anybody that follows Obama just take anything that he says where the word not is and just completely delete that. So I will read it for you, what he's going to say. What I will do is create a habit, a pattern – whereby the full faith and credit of the United States becomes a bargaining chip to set policy. There you go. That's the agenda. He reiterated his vow to not negotiate over raising the to to not negotiate over raising the debt limit which Republicans want to tie spending cuts or block his signature on a health care program. He said that he is unwilling to haggle over the terms of the budget and is not against the threat of a government shutdown or killing the health care program. Well, that's one of us. And we're coming up on it. The Treasury, the U.S. Treasury is expected to exhaust measures to avoid exceeding the $16.7 trillion debt limit as soon as mid-November, which it hasn't raised in like, I don't know, like 90 days or something. 
If the borrowing cap is not raised, the United States will not be able to pay its bills and go on and will go into default. I mean, we've already been in bankruptcy once. What's a little default? At the same time, <clears throat> the health care program, formerly called the Affordable Care Act, is popularly called Obamacare, faces a deadline of October 1st, which is signed to the sign of insurance exchanges opens um, to the public. The six-month sign-up period is deemed critical for the success of the law, and the administration has struggled against political, operational, and obstacles that to get the program running. As the president spoke, Republicans in the House of Representatives renewed their plans to press for the delay of the health care program and by attaching such language as debt limit measure. Obama has sharp language for a tactic, likening it to extortion, calling it a terif terrifying financial brinksmanship because of ideological arguments that people are having. No, we're just tired of going into debt to China, dude. That's all it is. All right, so I'm out of time, everybody. I got one minute. I think I got one minute here. We can wrap this up. Republicans are under pressure from the most conservative members to link government funding measures to cuts or delays to Obamacare. The measure to link government funds for next year into this year's delay on Obamacare had been gaining traction in Congress. Last week, the House of Republicans rejected a proposal put forward by House Speaker John Boehner and the Majority Leader Eric Cantor that was not strong enough. Brenda Beck, a former spokesman of um, the Republicans, threatened default the president only uses the scare tactics to avoid having him shut down and show that he encourages the detail of our debt crisis. Every major deficit deal in the last 30 years has been tied to a debt limit increase, and it should be time for no different kind. So I actually ran over time, so sorry for the people that couldn't hear that live, but um, it will be archived. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thanks to Ben Swan for taking the time out of his busy day and come on. And uh, have a little conversation with me. I completely enjoyed it. And once again, everybody, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. Um, follow me on Twitter. I'm starting to take a more active role on Twitter. That is, we are not cattle, the number one. And uh, go to my Facebook page and like my Facebook page. Appreciate the time, everybody. Peace, love, and liberty. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. Let's do this. Oh, you